0: Our thanks to Superfine The Fair for sponsoring this episode of Explain Me. Superfine is the friendly, approachable art fair coming to New York City next month from May 2nd through May 6th.
1: Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson.
0: And I'm William Powheida.
1: Today we're going to talk about the new museum's triennial Songs for Sabotage. So this is the fourth edition of the triennial, uh, which is self-described by curator Gary Carrion Moriari and Alex Gardenfeld as a new kind of propaganda. The show runs through May 27th, so that's the amount of time you have to see it. And it focuses on art that looks at the intersection of governing structures, economic structures, and cultural beliefs.
0: All right, so Patty, maybe you can uh, set the scene for our audience. What does the show look like on the top floor?
1: Sure. So the top floor is the fourth floor of the museum. And, uh, you know, you enter, it's 2018. But on this floor, it looks like we're in 2050, post-nuclear Holocaust. The scene looks like something out of a surreal Terminator movie. There's a massive empty swing set by Diamond Stigley that dominates the space. It's at least half of it. Um, beside it there's a video by Manolis D. Lemos which pictures a group of people racing in slow motion towards a yellow horizon. Around it are wall-based work in which paint or staples camouflage figures either for safety from violence or buried underneath violence that has been done to them. In the stairwell an ominous hum is slowly but surely eating away at the structure of the museum. That piece is by Lydia Oraman, and it's a sound piece that has literally has the wall in shambles. So this triennial is just as much a vision of our future as it is our present, and that alone should be enough to terrify us. I
0: I, I didn't really like this show. I, I wanted to, and I know you love it, Patty. I've been trying really hard to try and like the show, uh, because on one hand the curators Gary Carrion Murari, who I'll probably just refer to as GCM, um, and Alex Gartenfeld, it brought a totally different lineup to the triennial by selecting millennialish artists from around the world without any discernible art world darlings, which harkens back to what new museum the New Museum's founder, Marsha Tucker, created the museum for. New art now. You know, this on the whole is a good thing. And, you know, I do think Jerry Saltz is a bit bananas for calling it the I'm more woke than you triennial. And, um, you know, I just found his kind of nimby logic to be a little bit Trumpian, going so... He, he kind of goes so far as to curate his own show of deserving local artists or... You could say Native artists. So it's a little isolationist in its thinking. But so I know you have a you know different take on Jerry's review and some of the other reviews that people uh, have written already about the show.
1: Well, I mean, it it does seem like the one thing that we can all agree on uh, is that there's a lot of bad art in the show. So Jerry says that certainly what we don't agree on is the reason. So Hall and Cotter thinks the work is safe. Too much painting. Too too market friendly. Ben Davis thinks there's too much of what I personally call invisible history art. That's uh, art that makes no sense without a wall label to explain its importance. Jerry Saltz thinks the show is pretentious and is bothered by the subject of systematic oppression, which he thinks is uh, you know more fashionable than say making wage part of the exhibition so that all the artists can get paid. And William. You know, I had thought from previous discussions that you didn't like the show because you felt it was bucking values like newness, originality, and novelty and that they've dug themselves into a hole, but it seems like your opinion is actually a little bit more complex than that, which I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we can get
0: to that when we when we talk about some of the artists and what work they're presenting and how they're presenting it.
1: Right. Well what it what's the Central problem for this of the show for you.
0: Well, you know, I just don't think all the artwork is that great. In part because you know these artists have been selected according to uh, GCM. That they resist the narrative of art where the where much of its value for the audience, rests on its newness, its originality, its novelty. In his brief catalog essay, also titled uh, Songs for Sabotage, GCM writes, Often in the past, there has been an expectation from critics, curators, and collectors alike, the most promising and relevant emerging artists will offer a sense of formal and technological progress. And, you know, I could would note here that GCM and Alex G kind of sabotage the entirety of Rhizome and New Ink's, you know, project here. So they must be really popular uh, with those wings of the new museum <laughs> um, and to continue these artists are positing visions of the future for an audience of today and so you know, there's a kind of like my basic translation of this is that uh, GCM and Al Gartenfeld are proposing that the avant-garde is dead And GCM continues to explain to us that the artists in this uh, exhibition resist the speculative impulse in favor of attempts to understand our present and how we arrived in such a state. They belong to a generation of the young precaria, And so, again, this, you know, I feel like they brought together artists who are sort of pissed off and ambivalent about um, the world and they're using traditional, uh, fairly traditional art in like really recognizable style um, to kind of convey their experience about, you know, the kind of fucked up state of affairs uh, in the world right now.
1: I guess this does get back to uh, my original thoughts on the show that, you know, which is that like nobody likes a lot of the art in the show because it is weak. And, uh, you know, the reasons for that are, you know, in some ways that, like laid out in the catalog, you know, there there is a discussion of how their works are, are in familiar styles that doesn't really bother me so much as just the the kind of I guess like undeveloped painting of which there seems to be quite a bit of Anupam Ra- uh, Roy's uh, clunky figurative painters that respond to India's far far right uh, prime minister who has stoked a lot of islamic phobic sentiment for example or just you know they have a lot of the uh, same qualities that a painter that who is learning how to paint will have you know because a lot of people when they are learning to paint they make the same mistakes so he He puts too much paint on the canvas, and they're they're overworked. You know, the uh, Chamu Nokei's blackened rainbow paintings? These are paintings in which different colored outlines of figures collide, and they kind of look as if they're part of some nondescript, non-profit commercial. They're supposed to get at the psychological nature of protesting. I don't know that that's what they do at all. I mean, you really just sort of look at them and then forget about them.
0: Yeah, and I'd say most of my problems with the show sort of start and end with the wall text and catalog essays by the curators. So, you know, in the second half of the show, I think we'll discuss, you know, a bit more of the kind of curatorial premise for me, which is a kind of like metamodernist, have your cake made by others and eat it too position that the curators kind of proposed.
1: The wall text uh, says that songs for sabotage explores interventions in the cities infrastructures and networks of everyday life proposing objects that might create common experience. So you know basically the museum the curators traveled the world in the hopes that we could uh, uh, learn and from each other's experience and that will ultimately bring us closer together. It's a sort of it is the definition of a nonprofit project. And it's but it's also an experiment that failed because like it's no big surprise that that it would because we're looking at other societies that are crumbling. So, you know, that we have like we have no model for success yet, which, you know, be really nice if we had one. Anyway, the result is that we have a show that's just vastly uneven, that and that reflects the state of the world, which is mired in economic and social disparity. But, you know, I'm glad that this show exists because um, it presents artwork from countries we never, we never see at uh, art fairs, and that's something that even with the show's all its shortcomings, I personally want to celebrate.
0: Yeah, and you know I I can agree with that, and I appreciate that idea of wanting to celebrate the show. But you know, as a critic, um, sometimes our job is also to sabotage, and often from within, either because the work isn't terribly good or it's problematic. And I think the the things that I would probably most want to sabotage about the show have to do more with the curatorial side of things than the artists. And that my first act of sabotage as a critic is probably just uh, by omitting twenty or so of the artists that I don't really want to talk about. (laughs) Um, It's a more quiet form of sabotage. We're not trying to blow up anyone's career. You just won't hear their names. Uh, We have, we have our list of artists that we want to discuss. Um, Yeah,
1: let's, let's get to it. Yeah.
0: And so I, I, you know, I'm basically just going through the order that I walked through the show, so this isn't like a hierarchical presentation of what I found to be most interesting. But the 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 first painter I, I want to talk about, um, Zimbabwean painter Gresham Tapiwa uh, Noid. Again, never heard Gresham's name pronounced. So, but we
1: did rest assured have long discussions prior to the show about how to pronounce this uh, artist's name.
0: And hopefully the new museum will be providing us with some phonetic pronunciation for the artist's name that we'll post on the website. Um, But So so Gresham is an artist who is having a solo exhibition in London that opens May uh, 2nd. So he is somebody that is operating in the art world, in the art market. And and I point this out because nobody, I felt like nobody in the show is here to self-sabotage their careers. Camouflaged expressionist paintings present Zimbabwe is a militarized state run by Strongman, symbolized by his characters of stereotypes of African features, full lips, and big white teeth. These paintings uh, embody for me the curator's assertion that the artists are less concerned with innovation than stepping into Western artistic traditions like expressionist painting. You know, his paintings evoke Gustin's flat-footed approach uh, to painting with color and line. And, you know, they are appealing uh, despite the constant presence of like Mugabe and the military uh, throughout the work, whose willingness to confront his political reality through paint is what really buoys uh, the works for me and distinguish it from a kind of resurgence of even more traditional forms of portraiture by a lot of African-American painters.
1: Right. Well, first I wanted to I guess to say that, like, I'm not really bothered that the artist's career is going to benefit from this show. In fact, I kind of hope that that's what happens because it will, you know, I, at least in theory, you know, give exposure to the state of Zimbabwe, which is, as you say, a militarized state run by strongmen. I thought the paintings were really well executed. It has a sort of Jean, Jean-Michel Basqu- Basquiat meets, like, Francis bacon like sort of fruit palette quality to it. And obviously the message is far different than either of those, but you really do get a sense of the fear that he's trying to impart and, you know, the, the need to hide and protect oneself and, you know, the place. So like, I feel like all of those things that he wanted to communicate are actually, they're actually being communicated through that sort of camouflage painting. Also, some of the paintings are just really deeply creepy. Like if you look at the New Zimbabwe, there's like, it's a painting in which two figures stand on either side of a king-like figure. And one of the figures is a woman, presumably the king's partner, with her teeth on a platter. So there's a kind of violent silencing that is the most like visible aspects of this society and is made clear through these paintings. Even through all that camouflage, I just think it's those are really great paintings. They do a great job making their point.
0: Right. And speaking of points, uh, Philadelphia based artist Wilmer Wilson IV, born in 1989, has a series of stapled over images of African-American bodies that also function much like camouflage, hiding much of the, the subjects of the portraits from like a kind of frontal gaze and can only be seen from an angle. The works reminded me a great deal of two African-American artists, Barkley Hendricks, where his subjects head and hands really pop out of the, the monochrome background. Grounds of the paintings, or their kind of stylish outfits. And also uh, an artist named Jeff Sonhaus, whose practice focuses around creating masks for black men, sometimes in paint, but in other times with matches. Wilson's work seems to be um, like quite innovative relative to the kind of very traditional approach.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's because he's using he's he's being very innovative with materials I think these are great works the pieces just a little bit of background were initially drawn from posters advertising church events or parties and then they were uh, blown up and covered with thousands of staples so the figures as you were saying sort of subtly emerge from behind this like pattern staple application but uh, you know various features are left untouched so you know in one piece Wilson leaves the hands of a black figure like, completely untouched and that decision sort of reminded me of like the sort of formal strategy of abstractionists who would create these abstract figures but leave a perfectly painted hand as a nod to their technical skill. I mean also hands are just like really like very sensitive and impart a lot of information so it, it feels kind of almost luxurious to have them um, you know left completely uncovered. Anyway, the application of the staples kind of creates this, like, lush patterning um, that mimics, like, that of synthetic furs or carpets. And I'm not sure if this was intended, but for me, I saw this as a nod to a kind of class struggle. Like, the self-made texture that is both kind of aspirational in nature, but violent in its application.
0: You know, I know you... you enjoyed and kind of talked a lot about Manello's um, d Lemos' video um, and I really didn't like the video <laughs> um, I think <laughs> we, my, are,
1: we are definitely at odds of, yeah, in our evaluation of I, this
0: I think I tweeted at the museum uh, Lemos manages to subvert 4k video which I kind of think speaks to the nostalgia for antiquated pre-internet technologies or perhaps as a metaphor for like less repellent political climates uh, that existed before or the Greek economy collapsed and the EU imposed austerity measures on the country. And I think though that the the the, the, dis, the danger of nostalgia, which I feel like the video is trying to get at, is present, you know, um, in, in our current political situations with, you know, Donald Trump, the alt-right, uh, the Golden Dawn in Greece, and just the kind of resurgence of um, nationalist politics, particularly built on like a uh, kind of us first uh, mentality where countries are really trying to seal their borders off. So but this is probably why the piece feels so relevant, but for me is also kind of like the avatar for the show because in the end, nothing much happens.
1: Yeah, I'm not bothered by the fact that nothing happens. Basically, when you watch the, the video, it's called uh, Dusk and Dawn Look Just the Same, Riot Tourism. It pictures a group of people, like maybe 20 people running and they're all wearing the same jackets with a line painted on the back. And the video is shot from behind and slightly above, so we watch the performers in slow motion run towards uh, what's called Amania Square, which is the center of tourism for Athens, but also the site of austerity uh, protests. This is all done to the minor of dawn, a rubatico, which is a national folk music style that uh, provided the soundtrack for pro-democracy protests. Anyway, I guess like I, what do I want to say? Like, I think it's okay that nothing happens. And the real reason for that is that I don't think that we should ask what is essentially poetry to start and end our revolutions for us. Like, it's okay for somebody to make something that's beautiful and poetic. And like, a lot of what's kind of poetic in here is discussed oddly enough in the wall label that talks about how peace reminds us that dusk and dawn are only marginally like in fact they are opposites ushering in opposing regimes like that to me seems very beautiful the fact that they're the lines on the these jackets sort of create this kind of scattered horizon is poignant to me like we there is no unity we're we're broken.
0: I think this has a lot to do with this kind of and, and I don't have a better theory for it, you know, other than what like the kind of meta modernists have been arguing, where they're trying to get away from these kind of binary positions, either or, and really trying to posit a kind of like oscillation in between these two poles. And I think that video is sort of about that kind of position where you're not quite sure if these are protesters uh, of what sort, you know, they're not really identified. Dusk or dawn, you know, yeah. are this is this alt right or alt left? Is this Antifa? Is this or these fascists. And we don't really know. And the video just kind of like hovers in that space in between, which I, I think speaks to a kind of desire that the whole show has is to like, it's not activism, and it's not just, you know, vapid formal art with no content. And and it's it's a kind of a position, it allows you not to have to take a position. And I think right now, I don't know how that works politically. You know, that's like that centrist position that we've had a lot of discussion about in the past. Like, what is it? Where is that place where you don't have to, you know, sort of choose a side?
1: Politically, it's certainly a problem. But I think it also reflects the kind of, I mean, these are very confusing times, too. I mean which is not to say that anybody should be confused about Donald Trump and like what maybe what our position is, you know, relative to him or other, you know, administrations that are completely corrupt. But I do think like, it sometimes does become very difficult to kind to identify like, who your, who your friends are, who your enemies are in this like, weird world where like, images are completely manipulated all the time, like, So I guess, like, I think that that reflection is valuable. It's not what I want, but I think I wish we were living somewhere else some other time.
0: You know, as you were talking, I just suddenly had this, like, the the horrible uh, Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial kind of popped into my head. (laughs) Which is the sort of opposite of <laughs> Lemos' piece, where it just had a very stupid, offensive, didactic message about, you know, trying to heal the world through drinking soda. And in this case, you know, it's, it's much more unclear what, you know, what is, what is happening in Lemus's video.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, also, like, for me, I shouldn't just put this out there. There's a kind of sentimentality to the work that... I am definitely very, um, I'm not sure if the word is susceptible to it, but, like, I definitely like and enjoy that, and I recognize that, That level of sentimentality is not something that the art world always um, embraces. It's almost sentimental and in its complexity. I think it's beautiful.
0: I I, I mean, it made me, uh, it reminded me a lot of like Occupy Wall Street and the images uh, that came out of that of people confronting police, you know, kind of sent me back to 2011. I
1: like cannot disagree with you more on that because a lot of the videos that came out of the Occupy Wall Street were like... Accompanied with cheesy music and like some narration about how like we can't use words to articulate the problem because the problem is so ingrained that words... They're part of the problem I just like shut up hey, like this is like I get it yeah but I think like, that might
0: be a good description of the show <laughs> to some degree that you know the, the, well, the problems are built into it um, structurally <laughs> and you're right. I, I mean, was
1: gonna I thought you were gonna say that the problem was that there was too many words in this show which I would also agree with I, Biennials and both. triennials are yeah. never short on words. <laughs>
0: I know, and not to not to let uh, the video hijack the entire show. Um so sculptor Harun Sally, uh, born 1989, of South Africa, has made what I think to be uh, the show's centerpiece, a, a series of sculptures of headless bodies that references an incident in 2012 where South African police massacred 34 miners on strike. And I think this is important because it's the kind of artwork that I, I think the public normally would squat down and take a selfie, squarely inserting themselves into the work. Except, given the heavily non-Western identity orientation of the show, I think the savvy new. Music- museum goer may suspect that this isn't like a celebratory monument to successful men that somehow don't have heads but perhaps <laughs> something political that they shouldn't photograph themselves smiling in front of. Gun Sally has created probably the most successful act of sabotage in the show. He ruined thousands of selfies. And I couldn't be happier with that. Um, and this is important to me because politically the work will have basically zero impact on violence in South Africa. Um, since, you know, art is really generally uh, good at symbolic representations and not changing how policing is done?
1: Well, I mean, I didn't immediately recognize these figures as minors. They're all in the same crouching position and because none of them have heads their mining hard hats are gone so there's nothing to identify them as miners or even laborers for that matter i don't know if you picked that out i definitely didn't so they are identityless which is its own tragedy conceptually i think this work makes sense for the you know for the show but this is one of the rare places where sort of like oh, where overall i felt like the show was very well ranged this one I kind of felt like the the placement could have been better because these pieces, or this particular piece, I think really needed its own room, like a kind of grave. And, um, you know, nobody would be taking selfies in it either, but I think it would, I think, pay the sculpture proper
0: reverence. Yeah, it does seem to be a proposal for a public monument that happens to be plunked down in the middle of the triennial.
1: You know, I just a. Add something to that. I kept thinking about this as a public monument, which, of course, I think would be kind of... would be a difficult... I think it would be difficult to place it in New York. I mean, in part because it doesn't really have that much to do with the history of New York, but also it's a bunch of headless guys. But I still thought that it would be better than those rhinoceroses that... <laughs> Keep getting talked about in where is it Aster Place where there's like a rhinoceros and then an upside down rhinoceros on top of it and then another rhinoceros on top of it. It's that's all I have to say.
0: Yeah, I, I saw Roberta Smith tweeting about that and she said she you know she hopes that the sculpture is really going to help save the rhinos in Africa. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> that's what the piece communicated to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, and now a public service announcement. The Long Island City Coalition needs our help to preserve public land along the community's waterfront. Mayor de Blasio, Deputy Mayor Alicia Glenn, and the Economic Development Corporation want to rezone acres of space along Vernon Boulevard and 44th Drive and turn it over to a private developer to build more unnecessary luxury housing. Please visit change.org and search for Save the Waterfront. This land is our land, public land for public use. Please, Find the petition and sign it to support a wetlands park, a community recreation center, and space for public education, job training, and the arts for all residents in Long Island City. Hey, Explain Me listeners, are you looking for some new art for your apartment? Well, you should check out Superfine, a contemporary art fair returning to the Meatpacking District next month, May 2nd through May 6th. With thousands of works by over 300 international artists, across 78 booths, you're bound to discover something to take home that will fit your taste and your budget. Most of the work is priced under $5,000, which is why Superfine is a great alternative to the other big box art fairs this spring. Don't miss out and get your tickets now at superfinenyc.eventbrite.com. So hands down, my my favorite thing in the show uh, were Wong Ping's Unsuddenly hilarious animations about animals, speaking of animals, that embody Chinese value. Particularly the one about a chicken with Tourette's that somehow becomes a reality TV star in the Chinese military, but ultimately ends up being responsible for the deaths of everyone in a hostage crisis. Um, Ping's animations are weird and amazing to look at because they don't quite settle into something immediately familiar. Like Patty, you described uh, Hardeep Pandal's Beavis and Butthead-esque animation. I I think Ping blends video games, apps, bad clip art, and um, cartoons into something unique that admirably goes beyond the kind of prevailing theme of the show by embracing formal and technological progress, at least in the sense it's not a retreat into the various tunnels of painting history that kind of mark a lot of the other (laughs) work in the show. Yeah. Pings works are, are worth the price of admission for the show and you should watch all of them. So, you know, uh, I think it's a reason to go see the Triennial and you should bring a friend. And uh, in, in you know, in a kind of subversion of my own critical tendencies uh, to reveal my own hypocrisy, um, I, I would encourage people to buy Pings art. <laughs> Embrace your inner capitalist and uh, try to acquire some of his creative labor. Uh, or if you're more of a Marxist anarchist, just send him some money. Because... <laughs> you know after all the curators you know contend that these these artists are all part of the precariat and they need your help
1: but you are right about the uh, the work of wang ping like that work was fantastic he these things are fables so they all kind of look like oddball screensavers there's like grid like patterns that kind of allude to a deep digital structure where where there's also like this cartoon-like imagery that illustrates a set of sort of curious moral tales. So there's one fable that tells the story of an elephant, an intellectual who discovers second sight. Then there's Chicken, the one that you talked about, the police officer with uh, Tourette's syndrome who accidentally kills everybody, and Tree, a bus passenger, uh, passenger forced to confront his darkest fears. And, you know, of they're just, they're really very inventive but also kind of poignant. And I thought that Ben Sutton at Hyperallergic really summed up his work very well on like why it was so effective when he quoted the last moral. He said, "So this is the last moral. To all righteous thinkers, perhaps it is worthwhile to spend more time considering how meaningless and powerless you are.
0: <laughs> like
1: most res- like the most resonant works in songs for sabotage. Ping's irreverent fables acknowledge the hardships of those who are powerless and the much greater dangers faced by those who refuse to remain so. There's an entire room dedicated to these videos. I think it's eight minutes total totally worth your time.
0: Yeah, and they play one after another. Yeah.
1: Um, and you don't need to see them in sequence, so... No.
0: And speaking of, like, other reviews or of the show, I would encourage, you know, people to read Ben Davis's review of Claudia Martinez-Garré's striking and also kind of self-sabotaging installation. And I'm just going to read a quote from Ben, his his review of The Triennial, because he sort of calls out uh, Claudia martinez Guerre's work as... A way you know it could kind of serve as a didactic for the entire premise of the exhibition. Davis writes: Martinez Garay has summoned together a century's worth of political graphics from around the world, broken them down into their component parts, then put them into abstracted relationship with one another, divorced from their original message.
1: The work by Claudia Martinez Garay is basically this: on one wall we see geometric abstraction. And then on the other, we look at what we see what looks like a sort of constellation of superheroes and villains all kind of cut out. They're like, you know, cartoonish renderings. It turns out that the work is by the same artist, Claudia martinez Gore, And she has assembled a collection of agitprop posters and separated the iconography from the background. So the result is some decorative wallpaper. It's definitely not the strongest work in the show. And also on that note, I think it's worth mentioning that one of the show's weaknesses, I think, is a predilection for work with heavy concepts that are not well illuminated by the art itself. So this is evident in martinez Garay's work, but in others too, I think Kernels. They had a giant sculpture that was a sort of allusion to the Athens Navy Yard and um, the economy that that sort of runs through it. But it was mostly through like a pile of skids mm-hmm. and an arm that, admittedly, was a little bit more interesting. And Terrell nips hanging metal sculptures, uh, which are supposedly about. Infrastructure impacted by disaster. There's no way you could tell any of that. Like you yeah, have to no. read a wall label. Those were the large those. hanging
0: sculptures when you first come into the fourth floor, right? Yeah, yeah. They're almost entirely devoid of any context, but do contribute to the feeling that something is blown up or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back to the Terminator it's vibe. True.
1: Uh, they
0: <laughs> they're just kind of flowing through the air, frozen mid-motion. But that's
1: also a good example. I mean, too, of like you know rooms that would not. Where art gets attention that it would not otherwise be warranted because the arrangement of art looks good and kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I would just to to add just one thought about Claudia Martinez Garay's piece. I mean, you know, Ben's talking about how these, you know, the, the the posters have been broken apart so that the the political symbols and icons are presented on one wall, and then just these kind of like empty backgrounds on the other which end up looking like a really nice wall of modernist colorful painting and both of them are very slick but it's that kind of bracketing out of like separating the political content from its frames or you know just the aesthetics of it and just kind of aestheticizing it that you know I think a lot of the criticism of the show sort of and and political art in general revolves that you know that it's sort of framed out taken out of its context or where it came from and put into one place for a kind of potentially neutral consideration of them, both as art and propaganda. And that, you know, the best works are probably doing both at the same time. But she's really made, she's illustrated what it looks like when you separate the two.
1: I think it's one of the most problematic works in the show by a long shot.
0: So we've talked a lot about different pairings and rooms within the triennial, but I think the the best room in the exhibition probably goes to Matthew Angelo Harris and Geniva Ellis, whose sculptures and paintings, um, respectively, are solid both conceptually and formally. I think Harrison has made a great piece of institutional critique with his 3D printed versions of African artifacts uh, presented in vitrines that squarely tie ideas of technological progress to African culture and history, um, which has been plundered by Western artists like Picasso, who Certainly did not invent abstraction as the narrative goes, um but was really celebrated for stealing it like in broad daylight. <laughs> um, Again, Harrison is an artist who doesn't retreat from technology, but rather puts 3D printing to more potent use than 99% of the post internet new media crowd. I mean, exceptions include American Artist and Josh Klein. A lot of that work really leans heavily on abstraction. You know, I have like nightmares about gradients. Surrounding Harrison's clean, minimalist installation are Ellis's more maximalist and energetic comic paintings that are similar to Gresham Naoude's uh, paintings that we discussed earlier. They riff on stereotypical imagery of African Americans. That invite some comparisons to Disney cartoons and other historically white narratives that have othered and lampooned people of color. Her paintings are arguably the best in the show. They kind of fuck with everyone from Picasso to Neo Rauch, and you can see that. You can see all of her paintings that are pictured in uh, the catalog actually on Forty Seven Canals website right now. I want to make this point because this is part of the show that's so frustrating for me. I think the show kind of positions itself like these artists are somehow going to try to sabotage the art market and their careers. But much like the curators themselves, these artists are basically all insiders now, if they weren't before. This is definitely not a show that's going to sabotage anybody's ability to climb the rungs of uh, the art world ladder. And I'm sure that it's going to help launch many careers. And so Alex Gartenfeld concedes as much in his kind of really choppy catalog essay, stating, the implicit task of the triennial is to contrast the spirit of internationalism, solidarity, diversity and autonomy, with the deleterious dominating processes of globalization, and to observe and propose points of connection that might be liberatory, rather than merely advancing the agenda of neoliberalism by introducing young international practitioners to the market. And I think this is a really important admission on uh, Alex's part because he knows that this is sort of an inevitable conclusion um, because the art market and the art world are intertwined like two strand, two different strains of Ivy kind of climbing the walls of Columbia. You just can't pull them apart.
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly the art market thing is like the least interesting aspect of this to me entirely. Like I, I just, I don't really care that the work is on 47 Canal's website or, like, that Ellis might profit off this. Like, this is kind of what we want for artists, right? We want them to be successful. So this is, it's a thing, and I get that it's sort of frustrating, uh, well put, I guess, in contrast to some of the curatorial conceits. But, you know, sometimes people have dumb ideas, like... I'm just going to put them aside and focus on the work. And in this case, like, I think we both agree that the work is really good. Like, the, you know, it has the room itself is a great pairing and it has a lot of the characteristics that you and I both look for in shows, like innovation, critical perspectives, all that. And, you know, Alice's paintings, I agree, are, and maybe would even go further, I think they're by far the best in the show. I think there's like a kind of grandioseness to them that gives the scale of the stereotypes that she's depicting. You know, they they look as grandiose as the paintings themselves and that, you know, I think is really powerful. And then the statement that's made by those paintings is in some ways reinforced and deepened by the work of Michelangelo Harrison, who presents those series of, you know, African masks and and figures that have been 3D printed, but they're encased in amber. So here he kind of shows a history that, you know, he shows how history and art, like the institutions themselves, can kind of keep progress at bay, preserving and dissecting hi- Heritage, but like never setting it free. So I, I, I thought that work was poignant.
0: The last artist that I'll I'll talk about or mention um, was Haitian painter Tom El who basically made the prettiest, most market-friendly paintings in the entire show, which were also accompanied by some of the most head-scratching wall text in the museum. The wall text observes at the end, unbound to any culturally specific moment or location, these works debunk the presumed universality of abstraction. And so I kind of have to congratulate uh, El for doing like what no one has ever been able to do before, which is to debunk the universality of abstraction. I mean, unless he hasn't, of course. And I, I think at the same time, like, you know, Jerry singled out uh, El Say is is a painter to watch, and I think that's in part because these were really beautiful paintings um, that were sanitized of any of the kind of messy politics that are present in so much of the other uh, works in the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, I, anytime we start talking about the universi- universality or appeal of any kind of art, I get a little queasy, because there's a kind of homogeny that goes with that, that, that I don't, Uh, like. um, The idea that this was a notion that needed debunking in this day and age I think is perhaps a little just dated. For me the paintings are just sort of categorically um, not good. They resemble something that like the post-war painter Sam Francis might make if he were to work with a more limited palette. Sam Francis is another artist who I think is vastly overrated Um, so there's just like dots everywhere um apparently there's like an arduous process behind this work the marks are put on and removed in a trance-like state we're supposed to see these paintings as reflections on a data set and an attempt to unlock the hold of modernism on abstraction he uh, as you mentioned or hinted at he's removed any hint of the traditional uh, traditional haitian art making by uh, making it devoid of narrative content and references to voodoo. Who cares? It's just a lot of dots on a canvas, none of which uh, amounts to anything I want to look at.
0: You know, when you were reading your description, or like talking about that work... um it reminded me a lot of like Julie Morettu's process, which involves taking historical data sets and documents and maps and then completely abstracting it into something so, sort of so pleasurable that, you know, Goldman Sachs put it up in the, the lobby of their building downtown. And I think that's this kind of constant danger between when you kind of strip artwork uh, of of those kind of actual cultural histories that seem to give them power in the wall text, but then are not present in the works themselves.
1: Well, but I think Julie Muratu is a little bit separate from this in, in the sense that she identifies as, uh, you know, her work as part of social abstraction, the term that was coined by Mark Bradford that sort of talks about how abstraction and the process can allude to uh, more politically engaged work, which in Maratu's case, I've never felt has actually ever been illuminated. And this particular paint, painter has like gone out of his way to take all references out of the, the painting. So there's like nothing there. I just don't even understand why he's in the show.
0: Part of this whole paradox or the problem or the contradiction here is that all of the text leading up to that last sentence um, are very much about his identity, very much about the references that have been struck, right? So, like, why mention them? If they're not important, why foreground these paintings with all of that information?
1: I mean, I think they just needed some, like, big pretty things on a wall to make the exhibition look good. I mean, well, who knows? I'm speculating, but that seems like one reason to include them.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that.
1: So we both agree that the Tom Elsay works are some of the weaker in the show. Uh, That kind of caps off what we were going to talk about work-wise in the show. But I think the other aspect of the triennial is that it does come with this enormous catalog with uh, four different essays plus different, you know, meditations, writings on the artist's work. I think that you know we both read the four essays. You spent a little bit more time on some of them than, than I did, but I know you wanted to talk specifically about Elizabeth. Uh, what's her last name? Pavanelli. Pavanelli. Elizabeth Pavanelli's essay. So maybe you can talk about what made that essay so compelling to you.
0: One thing is that um, the show itself, there was a kind of expectation when you call the show songs – for sabotage that I think my first kind of reaction to the entire show was that somehow this was, um, going to try to escape like the art market. And I know you find this to be like the least interesting thing to discuss about it, um, (laughs) because I do think that there's like a history within art that, you know, whether it comes from institutional critique or conceptual processes where artists tried to dematerialize the object to make it harder to sell or make it less about a commodity form this show is not about that at all it really was about you know that that definition that Evan Calder Williams writes about saying that these are all we're all working within these systems in that in many ways we're complicit within them and that if we accept that then we really shouldn't have too much um, trouble with the fact that these artists are showing in art fairs and that they're you know selling work and that that's great but that's also a kind of like the logic of sort of neoliberalism, that like each individual artist will do okay. And when we know that large groups of people, um, including most artists, are really struggling, the galleries are closing and desperately trying to find new models. Um, so I do think there's some legitimacy in trying to kind of like question the, the the broader kind of systems of production that surround this show. And actually, it was one of the um, sort of main kind of criteria for the curators, asking how these artists' work fits into um, larger systems of production and kind of distribution. Elizabeth Pavanelli's essay titled Exhibit, uh, Expose, Expose. I sort of feel like she's trying to expose some of the kind of baked-in Problems uh, with the curatorial premise itself, which you kind of described earlier. You know, you have these two curators who get to travel the world fully funded search the margins of art centers for new people to kind of bring into the city. And Pavanelli kind of like discusses this as kind of like either a pragmatist paradox or um, she kind of uses philosophy as a, a place to kind of start. And she says, although professional philosophers have been given all the time and energy they need to attend to conceptual work, they have also sealed themselves off from the remorseless truth of given social reality thus their thoughts are conceptually wan and so once you start reading this essay i think there's a sense that like pavanelli is sabotaging the other essays that she's sabotaging the kind of whole premise of the show um and she goes on and does this in many ways throughout the essay that almost seek to kind of expose the curators which then led me to this kind of question like did Gary and Alex decide that maybe they needed to put this essay like a little bomb into their own catalog to kind of expose some of the contradictions and paradoxes inherent in a show because she, she sort of, you know, Alex states that he wants to do something more than just bring new young artists to the market. You know, I think Pavanelli takes that to like, she, she kind of gets at it really clearly in her essay She says, increasingly, artistic shows are not merely seeking to exhibit works from across territorially dispersed histories of culture and thought. They are also exposing the territorial infrastructures that distribute attention across global space and that drain energy from one place to concentrate it elsewhere. And I think that is, is a good description of the function of this kind of show. You know, it sort of potentially yeah. can drain the resources, uh, energies of other cultures and places, and they bring them back to New York.
1: I think it's a really strong essay. I mean, I know that I had said earlier that the uh, art market aspect is kind of the least interesting aspect of it. Um, And I sort of, I stick by that, but in the sense that when I'm discussing work, I kind of, that's not the first thing I want to be discussing. And, but I guess, you know, there's just so many lines in this essay that I think just kind of set themselves up for quoting. Like I think she says somewhere, it's an open secret, not even a secret that to any theory of modern art, artist and spectator, must also be added the modern speculator mm, yeah. and which is uh, of course true when she talks about uh, Damien Hirst's work uh which actually like sort of rem- immediately reminded me of like this trip in 2012 where I went to uh, Copenhagen and just outside the city there's an institution there called Arkin, and I got a tour of the museum and this the, the curator was not around so we were Stuck with a director who spent the entire time talking about how proud they were that they had more Damien Hirst in their collection than any other museum, <laughs> and of course the collection was like total garbage, and it was just like a list of you know various art market darlings. So who knows what the collection is going to look like in you know many years from now once these things have been reevaluated? But you know one thing I I did want to talk about was just this kind of idea of pragmatism and how as cultural workers we kind of we're always compromised um in one way or another because we're part of this system that is imperfect and it's you know we want we're we're looking for ways to better that system but as but we're not always in the position to do so because um you know for example as a as a critic like I have, you know, I have words at my disposal, and that's a very powerful tool, but by the same token, you know, I'm kind of reminded of, I think it was like Barack Obama made a speech uh, after one of the shootings, and he said, you know, I'm not naive. I know the limitations that words have, and, you know, that really stuck with me, because of course, here's this person who's like one of the best orators in the world, who has like reached the limitations of what he can do with words. And we want these, we want art, I think. I think we want art and we want language to do more for us than it sometimes can. And um, so we're stuck and we're, you know, the pragmatic approach to things, the, the, the acknowledgement that, okay, I'm gonna work in this system And I understand that it is compromised and that I will be compromised, but I will do my best to only let it go so far doesn't actually work in the end. It's kind of what we're stuck with, but in the end, we are faced with limitations that we can't get beyond. The reason I'm kind of, I guess, like hesitant to go too far or go further on this critique of Songs for Sabotage is that I think there's a kind of futility to it that I do not enjoy, but I feel like I have a responsibility to acknowledge.
0: Yeah, and I, there's that brings up a lot of things. I mean, you know, Julia Halperin, um, in her article about Helen Molesworth's firing it mocha or her departure from mocha, let's say, you know, uh, sort of sums up with something she had written where she was just wondering if the whole damn mess was sort of worth it anymore, you know, to, um, to kind of continue to perpetuate this kind of these systems.
1: Yeah. It was um, irredeemable. Yeah. I and think, and it, that,
0: it's a really open question. And I think Evan Calder Williams in his catalog essay posed it uh, this way he said, how can we give image, uh, to what gains strength from the very activity it wants to dismantle?
1: Oh, yeah, I read that and I thought, William, that's your <laughs> yeah. work.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and I think that's, that's the, you know, a proposition for the whole show. That if there are these systems that the show wants to criticize or take apart or the artists take issue with, like colonialism, imperialism, late capitalism, gianto power that, you know, Paveli mentions. I mean, all these arts have this kind of aspiration to kind of want to dismantle these systems, and yet they're still participating in these systems that perpetuate capitalist property transfer and ownership and it's it's not an easy question that we can resolve and i do think the show is commendable for trying to bring this up and i think it's sort of brave that the two curators were you know willing to put elizabeth's essay in in the catalog which really asks these sort of questions about the speculators who travel the world looking for the new thing to kind of bring and whether or not we like it, the new museum gives it, you know, the institutional kind of um, validation that this work is important, that this work is worth your attention. And, you know, as I think uh, Henry Neuendorf from Artnet pointed out, that there were dealers at the opening, like it was an art fair, ready to sell the work off the floor. And it gets right into that, like, you know, question is, you know, what is this work doing? What is this show really accomplishing. And Elizabeth's essay is so worth reading. It's worth kind of like getting hold of a copy of the catalog for, or easily enough, you can just read it in the New Museum's bookshop in like 10 minutes. Right. <laughs> and really, you know, take that in and go and look at the show would be sort of my recommendation to start to think about some of the deeper ways in which this show embodies and performs the very subject it wants to correct. So I, I think that is probably beyond the scope of our podcast today.
1: Right, but I do think that it is not beyond the scope of what we're trying to do here with Explain Me, which mm-hmm. is trying to get into that and deal with you know, the imperfectness of the systems that we work within. I think this just about wraps up what we had to say about the triennial. For our next episode, we are going to be talking about blockchain,
0: And our thanks again to Superfine for sponsoring this episode of Explain Me. Find out more and get tickets at superfine.world.